today's sermon title or message title is Sucked In, Washed Up, and Blown Over. But before we get into the message this morning, um, I wanted to pause for a little bit and give you an update and share with you a little bit about a special little someone, I guess you could call him, that was a part of our family. He was our mission project for the family, and the Orange Church so graciously and lovingly and patiently um, just welcomed, welcomed him in. So I need to tell you what happened with Hero. Do you remember Hero? <laughs> Our, our cute little puppy that um, was uh, loaned to us by an organization called Guide Dogs of the Desert. They were looking for a puppy raising family. And in memory of my dad, we decided that we would do this as a family and it was a lot of work. And yes, um, there were times where after eating the sixth sock, I thought this dog was just not gonna make it. And there were some in this church, I should say one in this church, who would often remind me this dog was a knucklehead. And, and I just have to share, this is Hero, um, before we got him. Isn't he cute? He's a Labradoodle. And this is probably how you remember Hero. He would come to church every Sabbath. This is when we returned him for formal, very intense and rigid training with a trainer out in the street. And he did more than just come to church. The school, Guide Dogs of the Desert, was just so happy to have an Adventist dog. He was their only dog who went to church on Sabbath. They had Presbyterians and Catholics, but the Hero was Adventist. Um, good Adventist dog. He would sit up for singing and go to sleep during the sermon. <laughs> and I am just thrilled to tell you, Bob, <laughs> that Hero graduated. That is Hero's new owner. Um, he's a true hero himself. Um, this is Stephen McGuire. He lives in Arizona, and he suffered a horrible accident where he lost his sight while he was in the Army National Guard. And so Hero went to him. When we met them at graduation, they had just had a new baby. So instead of eating socks, Hero helped them fetch diapers. So, so that's an update on Hero that I really wanted to share with you guys since you were so much a part of helping us um, here at church to socialize him. So I'm so happy and appreciate um, the support we got from you. Um, in his book, um, In the Eye of the Storm, Max Lucado writes a, a story that inspired me to give the title to the message today. He talks about Chippy, who um, Chippy's a parakeet, and he never saw it coming. One second he was sitting peacefully perched in his cage, and then the next second he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to do some housekeeping. His cage was a mess. So Chippy's owner thought, well, let me do this as efficiently as possible. So he took the attachment off the end of the vacuum hose and decided that he could vacuum the, um, the cage. And as he stuck the, the hose in the vacuum, the phone rang, and she turned around to pick up the phone, and all of a sudden, Chippy, Chippy got sucked in. 
And so she gasped, put down the phone, and turned off the vacuum and opened the bag. Chippy was still alive, but very stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she ran and took Chippy and put him under the, the running water in the restroom. And as she held him there for a few seconds, she realized that this poor bird was shivering and all wet. So she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She grabbed the blow dryer and blasted him with hot air. <laughs> poor Chippy, he never knew what hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who had initially written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. And she said, you know, well, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just kind of sits there and stares. It's hard not to see why. Sucked in, washed up, and blown over, and that's enough to steal the song from the stoutest heart. Oftentimes, our journey in life can leave us just like this little bird. We're left feeling sucked in, washed up, and blown over to the extent that we feel that there's not a whole lot to sing about. And as I read the story in the book of Ruth, this short book in the Bible sandwiched between Judges and Samuel, um, I was drawn to the story in a very special way. It's an amazing little book, and it has so many themes. If you look at it, you can say that it's about a book about loyalty. It's a book about acceptance, about love, about forgiveness. And it's a book about faithfulness and redemption, and the list can go on and on. This story is also about some pretty amazing women. And it talks about their plight and struggles. But, you know, more than a story about these women, I felt that really it's a story about God. Ruth was, to me, I think one of the bravest women of the Bible. She was a Moabite. She was a foreigner, an outsider. And she was one of two women to have her name to, in the Bible. And she was the only woman, the only Gentile woman, to have her, her name in Jewish scripture. How a Gentile can make such a name and leave such a mark garner such an honor in Israel is pretty amazing. In the face, especially in the face of tragedy, disaster, and heartbreak, how could one possibly pick up the pieces after suffering such a shattering loss? And I would say that maybe not without a little bit of toughness on the inside, maybe not without a little bit of a gentle spirit at the same time, but also not without a lot of God, not without a lot of trust in God. So you see, this is an epic story because it's not a story that just, or a book of the Bible that gives us a lot of information and the information in this book is very good and valuable, but it's a story about um, emotions it touches on our emotions and our imaginations. So let's go on and read, because this is what's going to help us understand the rest of what's coming. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. 
His wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Wow. What a blow. When Naomi heard in Moab that the, excuse me, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she'd been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Can you picture the scene at this moment in time? They're headed back and all of a sudden, Naomi's thinking this through on the way and says, well, wait a minute, go back. It's best that you go back. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud. All right, let's unpack this a little bit more. There's a lot going on there. Let's take a look just for a minute what's going on at that moment in time in history. These events are taking place in a time when Israel had no king. Israel was ruled by judges. This was a period in which God's people were having a really, really hard time. God's people were struggling to obey. They would move from being God's true people to behaving like they're not God's people, sometimes like we behave today. They moved from obedience to disobedience, and often they persisted in their disobedience to the extent that God would allow the enemies to defeat them. So they would move from disobedience to defeat. And at that moment in time, some of their strongest enemies were the Midianites. Often, their struggles and their battles and their losses resulted in oppression and famine. Because everyone did what was right in his own eyes, sin was rampant in the land and people had hardened their hearts. Several commentators suggest the storyline and Ruth tells us that possibly Gideon may have been the judge during those times. So let's look at the setting. We read in verse 1 that because there was a bad famine in Bethlehem, interestingly, Bethlehem means land of bread. What an irony that the, in the land of bread there was famine. Elimelech, the head of household, I think had been struggling and probably trying to think things through like heads of households often do today. What is best for my family? What alternatives and options do I have? Where do I go with my family? And Elimelech decided to move to Moab. In ancient times in the region we now know as Palestine and Egypt, famines were not infrequent. They were produced when there was drought. They were produced when there were destructive hailstorms or there was rain out of season. Sometimes they occurred during uh, when locusts would come and eat their crops or caterpillars would, dest would destroy their, their crops. It would result from cutting off of food supplies by siege. The whatever, whatever caused the famine, the result was always terrible. 
usually pestilence, disease, and great suffering. The journey to Moab, think about this. Moab was located on a plateau about 3,000 feet above sea level. And there's a map of ancient Moab. Moab was a land of rich soil and adequate rainfall. So Elimelech took all these things into consideration and he decided, okay, let me travel to this place where my crops will not fail. This family would have traveled north to Jerusalem and then crossed the Jordan River at the fords by uh, Jericho. And depending where they traveled, history tells us that their trip would have been about 100 miles and would have taken them about a week to get there. But now let's look at Moab, what was going on with Moab and who were these people. Relations with Moab. It's important to know that Moab was an eternal enemy of Israel. In Numbers 25, and I'm not going to go to it, we can read that the Moabites led Israel into sexual immorality and pagan worship. And Deuteronomy 23 has some pretty strong words. Let's read quickly. No Ammonite or Moabite or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. They were not a hospitable people. Do not seek treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. That was the advice. Interesting. Chemosh was the national deity of Moab, and this god was honored by the Moabites with cruel and perverse practices. And part of their practices included uh, child sacrifice. So this is where Elimelech is taking his family. All right, there's an issue there. Now let's look Briefly at the characters in the story, the, Israelites man, the Israelite man's name was Elimelech, and his name stood for God is King. His wife named Naomi, her name stood for Pleasant or Friend, and their two sons, Malan, his name stood for Tender in Health or Sickly. That's very interesting. And Killian meant Consumption or to Complete. Their names seemed to have a prophetic name because their future ended up in death. Um, these two sons married Moabite women. One was named Orpah and the other Ruth. And this is the situation. During their stay in, Noab, in Moab, Naomi's husband Elimelech dies. Then about 10 years later, her two boys also die. And at this point in the story, we can we can come to some conclusions or make some arguments. For example, we could say that God brought judgment on this family for entering this city that had been inhospitable to Israel and where pagan gods were worshipped. We could argue that God brought judgment on this family because they knew that they were not to enter into a treaty of friendship with the Moabite people, yet these boys married Moabite women. We could come to many conclusions and make many arguments. Interestingly, though, the text doesn't mention these details, doesn't mention the fact that, hey, remember back in Deuteronomy what we counseled you on regarding the Moabites? Remember this? The text doesn't say, 
They died because God brought judgment. So let's just leave it that way. And let's just look at the facts. Let's just look at the evidence that we have in front of us. The story continues, but we must admit that there's tension in the text because of what we already know. So Naomi and Orpha and Ruth are now widows, and widows in the ancient world had absolutely no social status, no economic means to survive. Women had no value or worth period. Women were worth nothing. That's hard to read. That's hard to accept. Women had no value. They were a possession. And this would have been especially true for Naomi. She was an Israelite living in a foreign country. Moab was not her country. And she had, there was no social security system, She had no male protector or provider. In a situation like this, I think widows back then would possibly equate to a homeless person today. I'm not sure, but it sounds that way. Someone who has no social status, no means to survive. This is where I believe that our journeys intersect. We intersect with the story of these three women. It doesn't matter in what century or in what part of the world this story takes place. Heartache and pain of yesterday's women is clearly understood and felt by the women of the 21st century and of the Church of Orange. We all have a story to tell. We've all endured adversity and sorrow in some form. We all have come face to face with those moments in life when grief is unspeakable, and when we ask our silent whys to God, we all have confronted times when we feel that there is no hope, that we feel that we question our own self-worth and our value. But let me just share this with you. Even in the face of adversity and sorrow, and even in the face of possibly the poorest decision-making and the poorest choices that we might make, God is present in all corners of life. There is no place where God's work is not in process. In the loss of livelihood and the fate of transient immigrants, in the journey into a strange place and the putting down of roots. And as our young children grow up and marry, in joy and in tragedy, as death claims some, and as what we think is wise planning to seek survival may work, in deep loyalty and love, it is here in this process that something new can be born. We mentioned at the beginning that this is not so much a story about Naomi and Ruth and, and their struggles as it is a story about God, a God who never leaves us, a God who hears our cries, a God who cares. This is really, truly a story of the power of a loving and compassionate and merciful God working in the heart of a young Moabite woman And it can also be our story today of a God who's working in our own hearts. 
It's the story of a God in his relentless pursuit for the, char- for the heart of his children. And it's about a reckless love for you and me. The Israelite and the Moabite. The Jew and the Gentile. The Christian and the pagan. It's a story about an encounter. It's the story of a young woman who had an encounter with God. That really touches me because as I read the story, I'm thinking of the story itself and of the events that happen. But one of the things that I just couldn't help pass up was that one of the most important, if not the most important event was the encounter. The story of the encounter. You see, it's in the encounter that miracles happen. It's in the moment of connection between you and your maker that transformation occurs and faith blooms and the weak become strong. It's in that precise moment in time that we come face to face with the God of the impossible, the God of the unfeasible, the impractical, the impractical, the unthinkable, and the inconceivable. In the life of Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah, and in our lives, ladies, today, it's not about where you currently are, but it's about what lies ahead. It is this new and growing knowledge of the true God that Ruth learned about in Naomi's home that led to her spiritual depth and profound words in a pivotal, in a pivotal moment in life. And we'll read about that next. These words speak to what's truly in Ruth's heart, but it just didn't happen by accident. It happens because there is an encounter. But Ruth replied, as they're in that fork in the road, and Naomi is sending the girls home, Ruth says, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, the one I encountered, the one that I met face to face, your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging. Where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God. See, this is probably the most powerful statement of faith that I find in the Bible. Ruth here intends to follow the Lord God no matter what happens in her life. If there's tragedy, she will be faithful. If she must face death, she will be faithful. Come what may, she will be faithful. And you know, what I see here is that even if life doesn't get better, even if down the road there is no light at the end of the tunnel, even if I can't see the horizon, no matter what life brings, I will be faithful. With this declaration, 
Ruth is walking away from her pagan life. She walks away from her false beliefs. She walks away from her false faith and into real faith. She walks away from her pagan gods and into the realm of the true and living God. It was early November of last year, and I was on my way to work in the car, and my cell phone rang, and I was able to get it on my Bluetooth. I could hardly make out the words of the person on the other end at the beginning, and soon I realized that it was my sister-in-law, and she was hysterical. She was crying and telling me that my brother was in an ambulance that she was following, and she says he's en route to the hospital and he's dying. My heart sank. I had been on the road thinking about my day. I had three meetings, and one of them was going to be particularly tense. I was meeting with one of our attorneys, and he was taking a case to the board, to court, and we were not on the same page. I had been intently thinking about what I was going to present to him in the form of argument and how much money he would have to try to resolve this case when all of a sudden that got interrupted because my world got flipped upside down. So I went home, looked for Dante, and we headed to the emergency room. At the ER, the doctor told us that my brother was in critical condition. He had diagnosed an acute heart attack and my brother had severe pneumonia. The doctor told me that he did not have the resources there to treat my, my brother, so, that he, so he had ordered a helicopter to airlift him to Desert Hospital in Palm Springs. One of the hardest parts for me was to, at that point, after evaluating the seriousness of the situation, is to go back home and, and break the news to my mom. That was difficult. We did that. We headed to Palm Springs, and every second of the way, I was in prayer. I was wondering. I was lost. Didn't know what the next hour would hold for us. Um, the helicopter got there in eight minutes. It took us a, a little over an hour to get there. When we got there, he was in a coma. And the doctor at the emergency room in Palm Springs gave us an updated diagnosis. He said, it's not a heart attack, but your brother is very, very sick and in critical condition. He has a very severe case of bacterial pneumonia, and we're going to put him in ICU, and we'll just take it day by day and see how it goes. We hope for the best. By day two, doctor called me and said, your brother now is septic. I didn't know what that meant. So he explained, and later on I did a little bit of research on my own and discovered it's a serious medical condition caused by an overwhelming immune response to the infection and that the chemicals released into the blood to fight infection can trigger widespread inflammation that can result in death. At that point, the doctor very compassionately but very directly told us that he wasn't quite sure what direction this would take. And all of a sudden, the realization hit me that I needed to keep things together for my mom and my sister-in-law and for the family. And although I wanted to just simply break down and cry, 
I kept telling myself that I needed to not let my emotions take over. I asked God for healing, and I asked God for strength and faith for me. I kept thinking that only three years ago, um, I had buried my dad, and that I might have to make arrangements for another funeral. I told God that I felt that that was beyond what I could bear, but that was my opinion. God has his own opinion, and I thought, whatever comes, just at least give me the strength, because I feel like I have no strength. There had not been any real progress after a few days in ICU. And finally, one day, as we went to the hospital like we did every day, I texted a friend, and this is what I wrote. I said, I know you're really busy getting ready for your road trip, but I'm reaching out to you to help me lift up my brother in prayer. I desperately want my faith to be strong, but right at this moment, it isn't. In fact, it's very weak. I just feel extremely sad and heartbroken. And it was finally at that moment in time that I gave myself permission to cry. As I cried in front of this sweet old fire chaplain who had come to minister to my family. And you know what? God is good. By the end of that week, my brother had pulled through, thank God. And I think he's still recovering from that terrible blow. And, you know, this past year may not have brought you three funerals and a famine, but this past year may have brought you a long list of things that you would rather forget and that you wish would have never happened. Possibly, like the ancient widows, you felt forgotten, unloved, lost, hurt, and in pain. The message in this story, though, is that like Ruth and Naomi, it doesn't matter what your circumstances are or how society defines you. In the sight of God, you have great value. In the sight of God, you are not forgotten, ladies. In the sight of God, you're beautiful and special, and you're deeply and passionately loved. He loves you more than you can even possibly imagine. Like with Ruth and Naomi, God isn't finished with us yet. Why things have happened in your life and mine the way they have, I haven't a clue. But I do know that Jesus Christ is the God of redemption. I do know that with certainty that it is that encounter with God, your daily encounter with God, that can cause a transformation in your life. He will give you new vision. He will give you hope and courage and amazing faith when everything seems lost. So even when we feel like we're sucked in, washed up and blown over, we move forward in faith. You know, um, I was reading this interesting story about this man, Paderowski, he was a very famous, po famous Polish pianist who later became prime minister of Poland. But he was a master at the piano. And one night, he was going to hold a concert, a recital at this beautiful concert hall. And the story tells of a young woman who really wanted to encourage her son um, 
at the piano. So she took her little boy to Paderowski's concerts. And after they were seated, the mom spotted a friend in the audience, so she went off to talk to the friend. In the meantime, the little boy, as boys usually do, started to explore the place. He found some steps and a nice, interesting-looking door, which he walked through. By the way, he couldn't read that it said no admittance. When the house lights dimmed and the concert was about to begin, the mother returned to her seat to find that her little one was gone. And all of a sudden, the spotlight shone on the stage as the curtains were rising, and she gasped as she saw her little boy at the piano, poking away to the tune, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. At that same moment, the master walked onto stage and saw the little boy, and he walked directly to that beautiful, grand Steinway piano on the stage, and he leaned over and whispered in the little boy's ear, don't quit, keep playing. Then leaning over, he reached down with his left hand and filled in a bass piece to go with Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And soon his right arm reached across and over the little boy and then started playing a running obligato on the piano. And together, the master and the young little boy performed a simple tune and converted it into a masterpiece. The audience was mesmerized. And I was captivated by this story because that's the way it is with God. When he becomes part of our life, when we have an encounter with him, when we allow him to embrace us and help us play the tune, that simple tune, of our life becomes a masterpiece when we allow him to surround us and when we allow him to have an encounter with us and become a part of our lives. Whatever your story or situation is in life, however outrageous, however desperate, whatever dry spell of the spirit, whatever dark night that you have encountered, God desires to be with you, and he's whispering like he did to that little boy deep into our beings, don't give up, trust me, keep playing, you're not alone, you are so special and important, you are beautiful, and together we will transform the broken patterns into a beautiful masterpiece of creative art, and together we will mesmerize the world. May God bless you.